and we're good. All right. All right. Yeah. So um, I just finished uh, Casino. God damn. Great movie. <laughs> Fucking intense, dude. I, man, I, I always thought that that was just like another Scorsese film. Not at all. I just figured it was. That's why I never watched it. It's because I was just like, it's Pesci, De Niro, directed by. I was like, you know, if you've seen them once, you've seen them all. God damn, man. That, that was, that made me anxious. <laughs> I was anxious. Goodfellas or, you know, Irishmen, those movies are like good and badass and they all kind of leave the same taste in your mouth. Like, that's really cool, but I'm never going to be in the mafia because everyone just dies. Right. You know, I was anxious. I couldn't put a finger on what it was until about halfway through. I was like, I'm tense. I was like, I'm fucking tense. I'm, I'm rung up. And then I was like, I got to finish this movie. So for everyone that's listening, Paul Whitcomb, you're on yesterday with the uh, John Wayne Gacy uh, episode. And you told me last week that you were involved in, or however you were involved or related or in a way, just like in a way you killed John Wayne Gacy in a way you are connected to, the real life events of the movie Casino, and uh, shit, man. Let's uh, let's jump into it. Floor is yours. Well, thank you. I, the the uh, mafia has always fascinated our culture. Yeah. For all kinds of reasons: power, glamour, money, girls. Yeah. Influence. Yeah. Uh, fancy clothes, fancy cars. Uh, it's always been fascinating. And and uh, one day I was in law school. I was sitting next to this kid that had just this real assured air to him and I, I didn't know who he was but there's just something about this kid that gave you the sense that he was packing heat <laughs> I don't know why but I really had that feeling so I asked a buddy of mine who was from Chicago who's that kid he said you don't know who that is I said I have no idea and he, he said well his grandfather's Tony Accardo I said who the hell's Tony Accardo he said you got to be kidding me He's only the most powerful gangster in the history of the United States. You know, I probably should look into that because I've never heard of the guy. Yeah. And it started me down a road uh, where later in my career, um, I would be involved in a trial with uh, these people, a couple trials, and uh, would represent some people who were allegedly connected to organized crime and just became quite a real researcher in it, um, a prosecutor for a few years. And. I've collected a large collection of organized crime materials connected with these people. Uh, I got about 4,000 photographs of Chicago organized crime figures. And it's just been really fascinating. I collect pieces of memorabilia from these people and have really enjoyed it. And that's why when we were talking about this book and this movie, Casino, mm -hmm. I, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about because some of the more colorful members of Chicago organized crime, their story is told in the movie Casino. And it, it's presented as a fictionalized version, but it's so close to the truth on a lot of things. Some things aren't quite right because we didn't know. These things are done in secret, but a lot of it is right on, especially the two lead characters. Uh, Joe Pesci plays, as you know, he plays Nicky Santoro, the, the crazy, mean guy. This guy was a real-life Chicago gangster. And uh, Eighth Rothstein, the De Niro character, was also an associate of Chicago organized crime, but his real name was Lefty Rosenthal. He was a handicapper and a gambler. And these guys, they met as children on the streets of Chicago and uh, immediately began a fight. They were about 12 years old, and they both wanted to operate their shoeshine box on the same corner. And they both told the other to take off, and they met in the middle of the street. And they both found out that they were worthy adversaries and became friends. And then 30 years later, here they are in Las Vegas. And uh, you've got this wonderful, exciting movie about their relationship and the forces that operated behind them. And it's, it's so fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, God, the, the, that stuff always just, whenever I finished, I watched Irishman in December with my dad and I'd, I'd seen Goodfellas multiple times and then not really in the same light the departed whenever i see these movies i always come out of it almost with like a scared straight kind of thing i always ever since i was little watching the first i mean the first time what was the first mafia movie i saw i think i was in middle school a bronx tale 
I don't know if you've ever seen that. I loved that one. But I always come out of them with the same feeling, whether nine years old or 29 years old. I always come out of it with just like, I just want to toe the line. I just want to like get a clean job. I don't want anyone with any reason to put a bullet in my head. Like I just, I want to pay taxes. Like I want to, I don't want to jaywalk. That's, if that's the purpose of those movies, it works. Cause I always come out of those just like, I just want the most vanilla life. You're a legit guy. Yeah. As they say in Chicago. Yeah. That's what I, I want to be. I want to be, Nikki, what the fuck are you doing? He's a straight guy. That's what I want to be a straight guy. I want to be the guy that even the mafia guys are like, don't fuck with him, man. He's, he's a good guy. He's a loser. That's who I want to be. And you know, that is true. The, 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 uh, the mafia does not in general mess with legit people. Yeah. And they, they, they prey on their own, but, but one kind of a misnomer here is the term mafia. Yeah. Uh, this movie casino is not about the mafia. Hmm. It's about the Chicago outfit. There is no mafia in Chicago. There hasn't been since 1929. That's Sicilian organized crime. Al Capone got rid of that. Yeah. He brought in members. You know, mafia was the Sicilian, Italian Sicilians. Okay. Al Capone was not Sicilian. He was Neapolitan. So he could never ever be a member of the traditional mafia. And he created what he called the Chicago Syndicate. And he had Jewish people, he had Welsh people, Polish people, uh, all kinds of different ethnicities were allowed to associate with the Chicago Syndicate, which later became the Outfit. And that's the organization that backed Nicky Santoro in Casino. So not the Mafia, though they're still associated with the traditional Mafia families throughout the country. Chicago organized crime family is known as the Outfit, and it's a different being. Now, is that is that just semantics, or is or is it a different? Is it organized differently? Does it have a different um, fundamental structure? Because it, it it from from my point of view, I just thought it was another mafia. You got you always got the old you know the old the ones. It's like the you know be wary of old men in a like a profession where young men die. Whenever there's like the old guys in the mafia, it's always like they clearly just run everything, right? That's what I got was like, yeah, they, they don't care how it happens. The suitcase comes to them and it's, yeah. that's it. So the, they are the outfit. They're not the mafia. They are the outfit. And the story of the outfit in a lot of ways is a story of one man and the story of American culture. The influence that the outfit had on American culture is amazing. As a matter of fact, I'd like to recommend to you Please and to do. your listeners a book. It's called The Outfit by a fantastic researcher. His name is Gus Russo. The yeah. Outfit, The Role of Chicago's Underworld in the Shaping of Modern America. This thing is time. full of footnotes, great stories. This guy's research is impeccable. Okay. And it tells the story of The Outfit, which is largely the story of one man. And I suppose you think you know who that one man is. Capone? Yeah, but it's yeah. not. Oh, I was gonna say, do you know uh, Capone's grandson? was in my older brother's eighth grade class when we lived no in No kidding. Yep. He, he actually passed away in his, when he was in his 20s. I don't know how. No, but that's my, yeah. My older, my older brother, who was friends with my older brother, is also deceased. But that was his friend, Aaron Ellis. And I remember him. He just looked like this big Samoan kid. But at hindsight, probably, yeah, probably whatever Capone was. But yeah, I remember that. I always remember that Al Capone was his grandfather. And there was... I believe a golf course somewhere in New Hampshire or Maine, but it was one of the places that Capone, one of them that he operated out of. It was like a, yeah, it was like a country club on, you know, some like one of the secluded holes, but it was just, makes sense. It was just your inconspicuous, you know, tiny little place back room. And it was like, that's where whatever went down. Um, Fun fact, do you know, while the ships were still burning in Pearl Harbor, I forget his name, but the head of FDR's Secret Service said, okay, we are now on a war footing. And Secret Service has since been on a war footing since uh, Pearl Harbor. But that day, they were like, okay, like, we don't know when the next attack is coming. We need to beef up security. And um, they realized they didn't have an armored car for FDR. So they went to, uh, I guess, the federal impound, which I guess is, it makes sense is in D.C., what did they get? They went and took out Capone's seized 
armored limo. Yeah, it's fascinating. Painted it, put some uh, flags on it and some running boards so the Secret Service could stand on the side. FDR (laughs) rode around in Capone's armored limo until they could outfit his own. But on the day of Pearl Harbor, they said, you know, shit's going down. They went and got Capone's limo. I thought that you might enjoy that. But um, That's fascinating. I didn't yeah. know that. There's yeah. a little bit uh, of outfit lore that I wasn't even aware yeah. of. Yeah, Raven Rock. I plug it on almost every podcast. Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. It's a book about all the nuclear bunkers mm. built from uh, from FDR through. I mean, really, it goes up and through like 9/11. But uh, there's a lot of little tidbits in that 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 you'll pick up in there. It's 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 wonderful. But um, yeah, I don't want to go too. F- far off track because i can talk about that book all day but so it's not capone though to no actually it's, uh, it's really the story of uh, a young a young boy who was capone's bodyguard ah. um, you might remember a scene in the untouchables where uh, capone throws this big dinner party and he beats to death two of his assassins because they were conspiring against them he uses a baseball bat but in reality it was one of his young bodyguards that uh, used the baseball bat and capone said well that kid's a real Joe Batters. And that name stuck with him. And that was a young Tony Accardo. Oh, shit. Who was one of Capone's bodyguards. He was involved in some way in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Okay. When Capone went away for income tax evasion in the early 30s, remember, if you're familiar with the Untouchables at all, a guy by the name of Frank Nitty was his successor. Nitty was just a front boss. The smart guy behind the scenes was a fellow by the name of Paul the Waiter Rica. He was really running things. He was sitting on the National Commission. You're familiar with that, where the mafia bosses from around the country, the five bosses from New York, Mm -hmm. the boss of Buffalo, and the boss of Chicago mediate disputes. Okay. Paul Rica was doing that, and Prohibition came to an end. And they needed new sources of uh, funds. You know, Al Capone was making over $100 million a year selling bootleg booze. If you can imagine that kind of money in the 1920s. But that dried up. And one of the things that the Chicago outfit tried to get into was taking over the movie industry. Okay. So they infiltrated the projectionist unions and the unions of the workers that worked on films. And they went to the heads of uh, the big studios and said, look, unless you pay us money, we're shutting down production on all your films. And it worked for years, but eventually they got caught and all the heads of the Chicago mafia, the outfit went to prison, except for one guy who was too smart. That guy's name was Tony Accardo, Joe Batters, the one who had been named Joe Batters by Al Capone. Joe Batters became the operating boss of the outfit in 1943, and his word was final until 1992 when he died of a heart attack at 86, which is unheard of in organized crime circles, to hold that kind of power for that long. Without being offed. And it, absolutely. Now, and when you think about mafia, you think of New York and John Gotti and all that. Uh-huh. But the truth the is... On. New York is divided up into five families. They fight with each other for power and money and control. Chicago was one family. Capone wiped out the other families during the 20s. Okay. And consolidated all the power. And not only does the outfit control Chicago, it controls Indiana, Iowa, um, Wisconsin, Missouri, everything west of the Mississippi. Miami, Las Vegas falls into that. So you've got one crime family, one man, controlling the organized crime for everything west of the Mississippi, parts of the Caribbean, the Middle East, South America. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation, bigger than General Motors. Jesus Christ. Yeah, most people don't realize that. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense, though. I mean, it's... Power abhors a vacuum, and it really is. Someone and it's someone with fangs is going to step up, and it's it's. I always think about that. Do you think that, and not to go off on a side road, but do you think there's any? Do you think powers in the federal government corrupt powers? Do you think there are 
they're a blind eye or they, you know, turn the cheek to, to mafia work. If, if they're getting a kickback, cause someone, I think Joe Rogan had a guy in the CIA, former CIA guy, Mike Baker. And he said, he was like, you can't say the CIA did X, Y, and Z. He's like, it's a massive organization. There are some cowboys. And he's like, but yeah, I mean, when you're in there and you're busting up these, you know, these Cessnas of cocaine coming over the border, he goes, you, you know, after the hundredth plane you bust up, you start to go, someone's making this money. And if it's kind of like we said yesterday, Operation Paperclip, if we have the scientists, we know the Russians don't. And it's yeah. like, if we make the money, we know it's not the cartels. And There's it's no question. You're absolutely right that the, the CIA, as well as other elements of the government, were in partnership with the outfit and a number of things. You mentioned at, at Pearl Harbor, the government went to Lucky Luciano in New York City yes. and asked for his help in protecting the harbors. Yep, the ports. The, they so you're absolutely right. And in the 60s, the CIA actually hired the Chicago outfit to try and kill Castro. Yeah. <laughs> and asked for their help in training the uh, invaders for the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. There is that kind of hand-in-glove little partnership. Yeah. Yeah, and man, and who hated the mafia, but Bobby Kennedy and JFK. I mean, dude, oh. it, gets, it gets sticky. It that, gets, that's a whole nother podcast there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's save that for another podcast. I would love to do one on that, yeah. yeah. That, that one, yeah. There's Harvey the Oswald, there. Jack Ruby. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. It yeah. Gets, that gets that woman who was uh, – Judith Campbell Exner. Yeah, I don't know if it's her. There was one woman I remember. She was – she was killed for overhearing something a couple days before the assassination. Oh, I see. I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, I'm yeah. talking about the one that was JFK's girlfriend and the boss of the Chicago Outfit's girlfriend at the same time. I didn't know that. I only knew about yeah. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Jesus. Well, well, Marilyn fits in there, too. Yeah, Marilyn fits in there with uh, with old Jack and Bobby. But, um, God damn, I mean. And the outfit. Yeah, JFK is getting a little greedy. <laughs> Dude, gets, but there was a woman that was killed and um yeah and she uh what did she say she was like on like the gurney and was like dying and and it's i mean it's all it's not verified so you can't but it's in one of these jfk books and it's uh she said jack is gonna die john f kennedy this was like two days before and this was in dallas they said who said that and i think her last words are something murmurings from the underworld but yeah. I mean, that sounds sexy, and it's be, you know, it's could be too good to be not good, but you know, too sexy to be true. Whether or not that happened, well, yeah, we're going. Uh, 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 yeah, let's say that for another podcast. So definitely do one on that. We've got yeah, some hell yeah, to discuss. hell yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and write that. Down. Can you do uh, next Wednesday? Sure, you'll be free. All right, we don't. We can fix this later. Let's. I'm going. I'm getting too excited. Um, I don't need to be making plans right now. So. But yeah, so there are, this is this massive, I mean, it is a corporation. It's like, you know, it's, it's like we often say a drug is only illegal or a good drug when it comes in a, in an orange bottle and it's given to you by someone in a lab coat. But I mean, a lot of the times the drugs in there are really the same ones you can get in a bag from a shady guy. It's just, they happen to be in the capsule. When we look at a corporation, we often think, you know, unless it's got a place on every corner and it's got commercials with the good, you know, politically correct, diverse crowd, and blah, blah, blah. But no, a corporation, it can be a, that can be the mafia or the outfit. It, it can you be. That it was, and the outfit was so powerful. Imagine this. One of the outfit's upper-level guys, his name was Murray the Hump, Humphreys, wanted Frank Sinatra to take his daughter to her high school prom. This is at the height of Frank Sinatra's fame. He's the biggest star in the world. Guess who took his daughter to the high school prom? Ew. Frank Sinatra. Now, can you imagine that? That is that is a flex. That's a flex. That is a flex and a half. And that that fits right in with with the story of Tony Accardo. He rises to power while his boss goes to prison on a ten year sentence. Accardo reaches out to the U.S. Attorney General, who was connected with the Chicago outfit. And he had these notorious mobsters paroled after just 18 months. Hmm. And in exchange for that, that attorney general received an appointment to the United States Supreme Court. 
it's that's power, man. That is, yeah, that's raw power. That man's name was Tom Clark. There was a scandal at the time, but he then had a son who became attorney general in the 60s and coincidentally shut down Bobby Kennedy's wiretapping program on the Chicago outfit. It's one of those things that you almost want to say can't be true. You know, it's right. You know, the idea of like money being made from defense contractors or yeah, the CIA working with the, you always like to, at least I do. You always like to imagine that there's like a separation, like, no, like this is the government. These are the good guys, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's like what Smedley Butler said. I don't know if you're aware of Smedley Butler, the, I believe he was, I know he's the, he's the most decorated Marine of all time. He went from enlisted to whatever the head of all of it was in 1933, but he's the one that wrote the book War is a Racket. And he went on to say about, you know, he was like, we just, we dress it up as delivering democracy and freedom. But he was like, you know, I took orders from Wall Street goons. He's like, I knocked down banana republics to ensure fruit company monopolies. And he goes on this long rant. And in the end, he goes, Al Capone operated in three districts. I operated on three continents. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's like you don't, you almost don't want to peek behind the curtain when you start to see these connections, like you just said. But it's, I don't know enough about this. You know, I'm going to stop interrupting you. (laughs) It's great. I love the back and forth. It just goes back to the story of Tony Accardo using his power to get the attorney general to release the most notorious mobsters in the country. And at that time, Bugsy Siegel founded a little place in the desert called Las Vegas. Bugsy was Jewish, so he was not actually a made member of the mafia, but he was affiliated with New York and Chicago. And originally Las Vegas was a place for the high rollers, the Mm. Flamingo Hotel, all kinds of very expensive entertainment. There was Baccarat crystal in all the rooms. It was a place designed to attract the high rollers, the super wealthy. And Tony Accardo had an idea. And that idea was we need to build an attraction in Las Vegas for every man. We need to make a $25 plane flight out to Las Vegas and a $12 hotel room so we can take money from everybody, not just from the rich people. (laughs) And he called that idea the Stardust. Okay. And that is called the Tangiers in Casino. Okay. But that was Tony Accardo's idea. And the Chicago outfit took money from the Teamsters Union, which they controlled, and that goes into Jimmy Hoffa and all that stuff. Irishman, yeah. They borrowed that money and built the Stardust. They also owned all kinds of other hotels in Las Vegas, but the Stardust was Tony Accardo's flagship. And it had all these arms built off it named after the different planets of the solar system, Jupiter, Mars, Pluto, et cetera. And it attracted the normal person. And he had, he had a son who was a travel agent. They were offering these packages, $25. You can fly out to Las Vegas, stay for $12 a night, free food, free buffets, all you got to do is just play. And of course, nobody wins but the house. Yeah. And they were just printing money. They made so much money out there, millions and millions and millions. And of course, the outfit is skimming off the top before it goes to the tax man. Suitcases full of money went back to Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee. The outfit and their affiliated families were doing this. And they ran Las Vegas. And for the most part, I mean, for the most part, asterisk, but legally, not something sketchy like prohibition uh, and, and, you know, shipping moonshine. It's Well, the, it was legal. What they were doing out there was yeah. legal, except they were avoiding taxes by skimming money right yeah. off the top. Well, that's why I said asterisk. Yeah, not legal in that sense. But it, it's not like the entire operation was this entire, like, everything is bad from the ground up. It's like, no, Bob and Jane Smith, you know, they could come out there, you know, all these guys that, you know, who were giving birth to the baby boomers. It's like, you could go out there and that's what I mean by legal. Yes. There's no sketchiness. Like, yeah, you could fly out there. You get a hotel, put it on your credit card. It's that part was all legal. That was just, you're an adult. You're allowed to come have fun. 
So in that sense, that's what's so attractive about it though, is yeah, there's the, there's the illegal skimming, but in terms of like, it's not something like prohibition or flying Cessnas of cocaine over the border where, you know, from step one to the end, it's all illegal. It's like, this was for the most part, like, sure, it could be seedy. You could have negative opinions of it, but ultimately yeah, that was your freedom, right? You bet. And keep in mind that the, the older statesmen of the mob always transitioned, if they lived long enough, always transitioned towards legitimate businesses, car dealerships, construction companies, uh -huh. office buildings. Uh -huh. Antonio Carter was no different. When he died, he had investments in real estate, in malls, and just all over the place. Yeah. And this is what the mob was doing. Now, keep in mind, they didn't invest their own money. They didn't risk their own money. They took from the Teamsters pension fund and spent it on those casinos and made millions and millions of dollars. And that's what's going on at the start of casino yeah. when they decide to send out Nicky Santoro, who in real life was a guy by the name of Tony Spilatro. They called him the ant because he was only five foot five and a little guy, but he was ferocious. Yeah. He, he was trained by a loan shark by the name of Mad Sam Stefano who was so notorious that even mobsters wouldn't go to his house. They were terrified of him. He would, he would uh, torture people with ice picks and blow torches. Uh, he had a soundproof basement where he would take people down there and torture them for days before letting them die. And this is the guy that trained Tony Spilatro. What the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? Right. So you see where that scene where they put the guy's yeah, head in the vice said, yeah, we'd stab him in his balls with an ice pick. That's exactly right. And that's a true story that really happened. Fuck. And the reason that it happened is that those two guys had murdered someone in Elmwood Park, Illinois. And there are two problems with that. Number one, they didn't get the boss's permission. In Chicago, it's called knocking someone down. To knock someone down, you have to have permission from the boss. They didn't have permission. Okay. And second, they did it in Elmwood Park, which was where a lot of mafia bosses lived, and they didn't want the dirty business in their backyard. So that's why they sent Spilatro out to find these whoever was responsible for these two murders and teach them a lesson. Yeah. Yeah, it's – yeah, again, it's – yeah. It's – there's always some – I want. I want to. Say, I don't want to say romanticism. I don't think that's the right word. But there's always this idea of like, um, I don't know, like a certain code, if you will, in the mafia. And I don't know if that's if that's just their own rules dressed up as code. But like they say in casino, like you know, you never touch a man's child. Or yeah. um, where do they also say, you know, especially with the old timers, you never mess with some, another man's wife. Right. Um, is it was it in the departed when uh jack nicholson goes over to like the the two priests he says something says something like you know he says something along the lines of basically like i don't know cut the perverted shit i don't know if that was that one wasn't in the director's cut but i looked that up and apparently one of the i guess the rumor is is that his character what what was his name again i cannot he's really that was that was whitey bulger right yep the the I guess unverified, I don't know how you could verify, was that he was sexually abused as a child mm -hmm. and that he had a specific, uh, you know, despite how dirty his hands got, he was very much so, I guess, on the prowl amongst the religious institutions. And it was basically like, I know you're men of God. If you, if you abuse these children, like, I'm going to kill you all. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so... Yeah, you don't, so yeah, you don't touch another man's child. You never mess with another man's wife. And it's, yeah, it's, again, it's dressed up as, um, it don't, you don't do this in our backyard. You bet. And that, that scene with the vice is actually what happened. And we know that because the Frankie Vincent character in the movie, the one who helps him, is actually based on a real person. His name is Frank Collada. And Collada is still alive. He has his own YouTube channel. And he was there that night and tells that story and he talks about how one of the mobsters was eating pasta while they were doing that and he thought what a cold sob he was yeah. he could be sitting there eating pasta they tortured them for two days yeah two days two nights 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Charlie M. Charlie M. It's that who made me pop, pop out your fucking eyeball. Yeah, that's M. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was the Eminem murders. Yeah, Jesus. And it was a, a true story. The guy that tells it, you can find him on on YouTube, Frank Colada. He has a, sh a channel called Coffee with Colada. Right. He was a thief and an outfit wannabe. In my opinion, he was never made into the outfit, but he tells some real colorful stories. And he became a government witness okay. later in life because uh, Spilatro decided to kill him rather than take a chance that he would turn against him. The FBI picked him up and said, here, I'm going to play you a tape where Spilatro is talking to the Remo Gaggy character, uh -huh. you know, who was actually supposed to be Joey Aupa. Okay. That's a Cardo street boss at the time. Told him to clean up his garbage. And he knew what that meant. That meant it was time for Frank Collada to go. Yeah, Collada rolled. Yeah. Became a government witness. Witness protection, okay. He's out of it now. He's on the internet. He, he gives tours in Las Vegas. You can go to Las Vegas and for 500 bucks, you can get in Frank Collada's car and he'll take you all around to where everything was filmed for casino. Man. Yeah. I might need to save up and do a podcast, <laughs> do it live from the car. Right. I wonder if he would let me do that, man. Uh, he, he has let people do it before. I bet he would. I wonder if I could get Collada on here. If I did that, I would want to, I would want to be, I'd want to be like a well-oiled machine. I'd want to learn all about it. I'd read a couple books. I'd, I don't want to written several books. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would have to read all those. There are, yeah. I don't want to go in, you know, bullshitting and wasting time. Well, you know, there's some question about a lot of things that Collada says. Let's keep in mind that he was a professional burglar and thief and an admitted murderer. Oh, Jesus. You know, the scene where in casino where the, the killer chases the guy around his own pool and pops him in the head. Yeah. That was Collada. That shot him. Yeah. Oh, where you go when you jag off? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and Collada, he he was the technical advisor on Casino, so he would tell them. Oh God! How it really That's happened. Do you know on YouTube? Do you know that they? Because the only part of Casino I had ever seen before, and I uh, really remember it, was them getting beaten with the bats at the end. Right. Or when I saw that in college, just some brutal clip for yeah. whatever reason. Right. And um. So I was, as I was getting towards the end of, because I finished Casino. I finished Casino and then texted you. So I, yeah. I, I wanted to freshen my head. You bet. But I was getting to the end and the, and the credits started rolling. And I could hear them like getting beaten with a bat. Yeah. I was like, I thought the movie messed up. YouTube spliced that out. They roll, they roll the credits with the audio going. They don't want to show that. So I had to, on YouTube, I went up and found the actual ending. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. Now that scene is the one part in that movie that's not correct. That's not that's, correct. That's Beating not him. how it happened. Okay. That's not how Spilatro died. Um, it's it's close, but it's not right. Okay. Uh, the reason is because Frank Collada didn't know how Tony Spilatro died. So what really happened is, by that time, a guy by the name of Sam Carlisi had taken over the Chicago outfit. Tony Accardo still in the background, still giving orders, but he's living in Palm Springs, California, retired in his middle 80s. Sam Carlisi was known as Black Sam or Wings. And he was the boss of the outfit at this time. He decided that Tony Spilatro had caused too much trouble for the mob. You could see he didn't exactly operate below the radar. Yeah. I mean, he was he's sleeping with Frank Rosenthal's wife. He was involved in financing cocaine deals. That's a no-no with the Chicago outfit. Why is that? And he was involved in this hole-in-the-wall gang, burglars, that were going around breaking into places yeah. all around Las Vegas. Taking the saves. Oh. And this got back to uh, Joey Aupa, who then went to prison, and then Sam Carlisi. So they decided, Tony, that uh, Spilatro had to go. Now, one side note, I was going to say, it, it's kind of funny how, how similar Pesci's character is in Goodfellas mm -hmm. in terms of just a short, hot head. And yeah, cannot keep it cool, shoots the waiter, the, the bus boy. Yeah. 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 You think I'm fucking funny? Yeah. 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 So what, what, what caught my eye or ear? When you said um, cocaine deals, that's a no no. Why is that? Is that. Well, it, like anything with the outfit, rules are bendable if you make enough money. 
So I'm not saying the outfit was never involved in drugs, but yeah. it's always been something that they didn't really like. That they, they would kill you for doing it, especially if you weren't cutting the big bosses in on a portion of your profit. And Spilatro was not kicking up. In other words, he wasn't sharing his profit with okay. the big bosses in Chicago. Do you think that there, do you think it could have also been a sort of, you know, who knows at the highest levels when things are consolidated to just a handful of people, and this is pure speculation, I clearly need to read up on all this. Do you think that, do you think it could have been respect for another organization that that was their terror, that was their pie? And I don't know, I'm just thinking of South America, these huge cartels, you know, at some point you probably have the heads of these countrywide, you know, organized crime. Could it be a, uh, hey, you guys got Vegas, cool, we got cocaine. Here's the thing about that is uh, Chicago pretty much operated Las Vegas on their own. Okay. They let the New York mafia have a couple of casinos out there, but they didn't mess with New York and New York didn't mess with them. And they operated independently out in Las Vegas. And in exchange for that, they gave New York Atlantic City. I was, yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. Okay, so they get, okay. All yeah. right. Okay, so yeah. Um, so he's not cut. Yeah, yeah, he's not going under the radar. Under the radar, he's clearly a hothead. Yeah, they're breaking into these. They're stealing safes. Um, right. And yeah, he's sleeping with um, uh, what the hell is his name? Rosenthal. Is, is it Rosenthal? Right. Rosenthal. Rosenthal. Yeah, Rosenthal. He's sleeping with his wife, and you know whether it's dressed up as some code, some feel-good code, or whether it's just what they actually said in the movie. You don't sleep with another man's wife because that's not good for business. It's not because it's, exactly right. it's disrespectful. It's, you know, you're messing with his head and I need him working at hundred uh, percent capacity. So yeah, but so he's doing all the stuff. He's kind of turned into a cowboy and he's got to go. That's right. And Tony Accardo's rule was that you had to be a family man and you treated your family with respect. That doesn't mean they didn't have mistresses and all these other things, but you didn't mess with another man's wife and people died in the Chicago outfit on a number of occasions for transgressing that rule. Okay. So, so Spilatro had caused all these problems. And besides that, Joey Aupa, the previous street boss, had just been sent to prison over the skim. They'd all gotten caught. And Spilatro was about to go to trial on it. He decided that he wanted to be the new boss of the Chicago Mop. At that point, when he's causing all this trouble, he actually, there's a story that he actually went to Tony Accardo in Palm Springs and made his case for taking over from Carlisi as boss of the Chicago Mafia. Well, that didn't go so over so well with Carlisi either. And he, that it, it's what you call whistled him in. So the day, the last day that the, the ant was seen alive, he gets a call from little Jimmy Marcello, who is Sam Carlisi's driver. Okay. Hey, Sam wants to see you. And we know this is true because uh, Spilatro's wife answered the call. Okay. She identified Jimmy Marcello in court as the guy that made the call. Okay. They, want, they told him that you're going to be promoted to captain, what they call a capo, and that your brother, Michael, is going to be made into the outfit. That was the excuse for bringing them in. Ellis. And like now they Ellis. knew, they knew that they're probably not coming back alive. As a matter of fact, Spilatro told his wife, Nancy, if I'm not back by nine o'clock, we're in real trouble. He left his watch, his jewelry, his wallet on his dresser by the bed. And he went and he, he had to go. He knew that if he didn't go, it was certain death. If he did go, at least there might've been, you know, a 1% chance that he could have talked his way out of it. Or maybe he really was going to be made into a capo. Okay. But you don't get whistled in in Chicago and not go. It's a death sentence. If you don't go, it's a death. And probably, again, just speculating, probably for those for those he loves as well. Well, they never they never killed family. Okay. In the outfit, but brothers, yeah, you bet. Okay. So, Spilatro really had no choice, and he went. It was this is where Casino gets it wrong. Okay. In Casino, they drive him out into the cornfield and beat him to death with baseball bats. In real life, they met near O'Hare Airport 
left their car there. His Lincoln Mark 7 was still there days and days later, which is where a lot of bodies were dumped and things like that at the airport. And they drove him to a house in Bensonville, which is a south suburban Chicago. Went down to the basement, opened the door, and there were 11 guys, all capos or bosses of the Chicago outfit, including the boss himself, Sam Carlisi. Carlisi, little Jimmy Marcello, Joe Ferriola, Rocco Infelice, a list of them that we could go through. These guys beat him to death with their hands and their feet in the basement of that Bensonville house. Jesus. And then gave it to somebody else to dispose of the body, Albert Taco, who was in charge of the Chicago Heights crew. Uh, he didn't do such a good job, unfortunately, because three days later, they found the bodies. And whether it was by coincidence or not, it was just a few miles away from Joey Aupa's farm that he owned in Indiana. Jesus. Yeah, a terrible, terrible way to die. Yeah. Yeah. So that that strikes me as odd, though, that that he that he went knowing. I mean, because he's he's such this, you know, take no shit character. That you you know even a blacklisted fuck them you know it, it it seems like such a he seems like he would immediately take that that attitude and go out blazing. But keep in mind how many people he killed and how many people he saw killed, and yeah. that was life in the outfit. And you never knew when your number was up, and he knew that his number was up. He was either going down then or or later. Yeah, and, and I'm speculating because I couldn't read his mind that night, but I think that he was thinking, "I'm dead for sure if I don't go." So and why maybe if I go, I can get my way out of it. Yeah, why why live on the run, looking over my shoulder? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was his life. It was everything. He thought of himself as the boss of sure of Las Vegas, and he had aspirations of running the whole outfit, a multi-billion-dollar international corporation. So. He went. What? What drives those guys? Those older guys that are getting the suitcases. What is it? Just the? Is it? They're not doing. It's not a means to an end. It's they just enjoy the act of. Because I mean, they get to a certain point where they're worth so much money and they're so old. It's like, what could you possibly be doing with more? Well, like, very, very few of them make it into old age unless they spend it in prison. Okay. Most of them die young, die violently by younger people trying to advance their way up. Yeah. That's how Gotti got there. He killed Castellano, the older um, mob boss. Um, death by violence, die by the sword, you know? Yeah. So it's pretty common. But these older guys, there's very, very few of them. Ricardo, he died a free man. He never spent a night in jail. And he kept trying to retire he first tried to retire in the 50s and they kept pulling him back and pulling him back because once you're in the outfit Can't, you yeah. don't just tell him okay i'm finished yeah there's no retirement plan yeah except death yeah god that is again that just strengthens my resolve <laughs> i want to yeah pay my taxes get an accountant yeah call before i dig you know yeah 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 yeah, but but really yeah so so and you knew cardo's who is he said grandson his grandson and granddaughter were uh, both in school with me in law school and um nothing about them in any way has anything to do with this story uh they were legit people cardo's kids he's got three grandsons now playing in the nfl uh nick bossa you know what the 49ers i do know his grandfather is tony accardo um he was a powerfully built man he earned his reputation as joe batters by being brutal yeah and this generation of his family everything about him is legit none of his kids became gangsters um, and they're all enjoying the fruits of his labor, so to speak. Yeah. Unlike in New York, the Chicago outfit doesn't tend to pass on 
this profession to the next generation. So New York is very, that's more of like a, there is a sort of bloodline, like an inheritance. Yeah, like Junior Gotti, you know, you don't see that in the outfit. They don't want this life for their kids. Yeah. And they, you have kids of major outfit players who are lawyers, yeah. uh, doctors, dentists, accountants, yeah. um, professional athletes. Yeah. Now, do you think that's a combination of they don't want it for their kids, but they're also, it's just like a dog-eat-dog world? Like, you can't be born in the position. Like, Steve Jobs is, you know, son couldn't just inherit apple like it's you know you don't have what it takes who's to say tom brady's son is just because he's his son means he's going to be the quarterback of the new england patriots like it doesn't you know it doesn't necessarily equate right right claw up to that spot yeah i think there's some truth to that for sure there have been a couple of gangsters kids who have tried to do that in chicago but just really haven't done well with the exception of one guy and that's uh Little Jimmy Marcello, his father was a gangster who was murdered in 1973. And little Jimmy rose to be the street boss of the outfit and one of the killers of Tony Spilatro. Jesus. He's now serving life at uh, Administrative Max in Florence, Colorado. ADX Florence? Yes. ADX Florence is, that is the, that is the apex of, it's what they call a clean version of hell. That's where you find little Jimmy Marcello. Yep, that's where you find um, – who is that uh, That KGB informant or traitor? FBI, Hanson? Yes, Robert Hanson. Robert Hanson, um, the shoe bomber. Isn't Ted yep. Kaczynski there? I don't know. I think Kaczynski's there. Yeah, uh, uh, the 9-11 masterminds, um, yep. the surviving brother of the Boston bombers. Yes. Um, yeah. That's yeah, and, and the only one who's not crazy could be little Jimmy Marcello. Pretty smart guy, actually. Yeah. Fuck that. Fuck that. Yeah. What a nightmare of a place to live. Yeah. Twenty-three hours a day in your cell by yourself. Yeah, and apparently there's there are two cells where they say it's even worse. It's called Range Thirteen. You can't find a lot about it online, but apparently there's a part of ADX Florence called Range Thirteen, and it's it's like two cells, but it's they said that there's like there's no human interaction at all. There's no you don't leave the cell. It's not just solitary confinement. It's like a series of doors and like yeah, like a conveyor belt. So like your food and waste come in and out, but there's no interaction. No. Just, yeah. It's torture. It's, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Good lord, man. Well, Marcello was sophisticated enough that even there he managed to turn the chaplain into passing messages for him out to the Chicago outfit. So the guy is pretty sophisticated and pretty dangerous. Yeah. At ADX Florence? Yeah. Holy shit. I thought that place was – I thought that was like the unbreakable. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there is such a place. I watch Prison Break. I mean, you can yeah, always, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, it's, I mean, I think the only way to truly cut off all information is, I mean, it's got to be execution. Yeah. Ooh. Well, we talked all about that last time. Yeah. Those, um, those two white supremacists, isn't that a famous story that these two guys were still operating? Uh, I can't remember what the hell. It's one of the huge, I feel like an idiot. What's the huge white supremacist? Darian Gant. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Those two guys ran from prison. Yeah. Still calling executions, getting reports. Sure. Larry Hoover ran the gangster disciples from a prison here in my hometown for years. Walked around the prison with a cell phone, gave all his orders. He, He ran things in and out of the prison. Good Lord. Hard to believe, but it's true. It is, yeah. I always like to, I don't know, there, there is something alluring about that it that it goes all the way up to like high levels of government. Like it brushes. It does. Like. You bet it, it does. Like we were saying, we could talk a lot about Kennedy and his family's connections with the outfit or Truman. Yeah, Truman was Truman? really connected. Oh, to the Jesus! Outfit. Well, Kennedy, well, Kennedy's dad was a prohibition guy, right? 
Kennedy's dad was, yeah, that's, uh, that's really an interesting thing to get into, sure. Yeah. Do you have any reading for that subject? I would, uh, love, I, would love to, I would love to, if you can give me like one good book, I'll, I'll throw it on Audible and I'll get it done by next week. I would love to go into, because I, yeah, like I said, there's something so alluring. I mean, the Irish, Irishman, I don't know if you saw that. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It, that kind Double of. Double Cross by Sam Giancana. What was it? Double Cross. Double Cross. By Sam Giancana. Okay. Yeah, it's. I always wonder, like, yeah, if it can go up to that level of government. It can be involved. I mean, we know it was involved in World War II. You we, bet. We had them, you know, it's. They say, you know, in times of hell, you got to make a deal with the devil. We had them watch the ports. Um, so the Q, uh, Bay of Pigs. Yeah, I'd, sometimes I wonder what is going on now or relatively recently that we're just not going to find out about until like 2080, you know? Well, I'll tell you that there's a lot of things that, like we talked about yesterday with the limited hangout in the fighter plane you know they show yeah, us yeah. this but what's really flying around yeah you know um, if you were to ask me about those ufo tapes that they've released recently oh yeah that's not from another galaxy that's probably from uh the skunk works or yeah. something like that yeah skunk the, lockheed martin maybe yeah. jock just doesn't know about it yeah i mean what i mean what is ben ben rich's skunk works by ben rich i don't know if you've read that that's a fantastic book dude he talked about in 1985 he said in his book, he goes, yeah, we turned down a, uh, a Pentagon contract asking for a Mach 14 jet. He said that in 1985. Mm -hmm. We're still apparently trying to get hypersonic craft, which right. is Mach 5 and above. Right. He said in 1985, the Pentagon was, was trying to contract out a Mach 14 craft. Yeah. 1985. Oh, yeah, man. It's, I mean, yeah, Ben Rich's famous quote, um, yeah, well, the the big one is we have the technology to bring ET home, but the other is is anything you can imagine we have or we've tried and realized it's not worth our time. Yeah, George Lucas would be jealous of what we have. These things are so wrapped up in black projects that would take an act of God for them to get out and benefit humanity. Yes. This is the head of Skunkwork saying this. You bet. You bet. While he has cancer, three years before he died. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is, yeah yeah and you know how we used to refer to ufos said that there oh. are unfunded opportunities meaning that they <laughs> were on the black budget yeah you bet that's how <laughs> i feel about it gets a little gets a little shaky yeah it yeah. that makes sense from an intelligence operation what better way to test out your new craft than buzz some u.s carriers keep you it bet. in house don't go, don't go fuck shit up on an international stage. Keep it in-house. And if you know that your guys can't figure it out, then you know you got it good, you know? You Test got it real good. You know that. Because no one else can hold a candle to our forces anyway. So yeah, if right. you can trick your own forces, that, you know, okay. Because that's, that's what they did with the F-117 Nighthawk. Ben Rich talks about That's how he opens the book. He goes, we had, like, the best uh, radar operators in the military come out to, uh, I think it was Tonopah in Nevada and uh, we had a T-86 chase plane go over and then we had, or no, we had the F-117 and then the, no, sorry, the T-86 chase plane and then the F-117 and they painted the T-86 and then they said, okay, now here comes another one. And you know, here's this black diamond coming. Mm -hmm. And they told them what we now know, the stealth is a, it was, it was a, a, a mathematics equation, ironically from a former Soviet professor but <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, but um, but we didn't even tell our own guys that. We told them that we had a special black box in the nose, and it jammed radars. Yes. So we didn't even let our own guys in on it. And the Air Force guys, they detect T eighty six. You know, they paint it, and then they watch the black the black triangle go over. And the quote is like, "Well, Mister Rich, you got a hell of a black box in there because it, you know, it jammed all of our radars. Never once knowing, even in these classified tests, that they were being lied to." had nothing to do with that it had to do with the geometry of the outside of the you know ben rich said when they brought the f-117s over to the middle east for i think desert storm 
Um, they were out in some, you know, super secret hidden, you know, cave hangar or wherever that we were going to use to go in and, and mess up uh, Saddam's army or, or his Republican guard. But the night before, so the next day, they found all these dead bats in the hangar. Oh. And they were like, what the hell is this? Because it's all these dead, you know, and if anything gets close to these planes, let alone bats, they're like, what is this? Is this a psyop? Is this what the hell goes on? What? Right. And they eventually figured out all these bats had been living in the hangar before they brought over the F-117s. And the bat sonar didn't work on the F-117s, so they ah. they hit them and break your neck. Wow. And then they drop right there. And that's wow. they said after that, the pilots were like, okay, we feel pretty good. Yeah. They go, yeah. there are yeah. dead bats everywhere. And they go, these things were hitting them headlong, breaking, because they looked at all of them. And I, guess, I don't know if they brought a vet over or whatever, but they were like, yeah, they're all dead from broken necks. And they were like, holy shit. Wow. <laughs> things were slamming. The, that's badass. But, that was um, stuff designed in the 70s. Yes. 50 yes. years ago. Yes. And that's... And then 20 years before that was the SR-71. Right. The top speed of which is still classified. You bet it is. So my older brother did... Not deceased, but he, he did... Um, he did aerospace engineering research at GTRI, Georgia Tech Research Institute. And I was with him in 2013... I went to University of Georgia and I graduated in 2013, but I was doing medical school interviews that fall. Tulane, uh, Los Angeles, Miami. I eventually I got accepted to Miami, but I would drive to his house in Atlanta and then he would bring me to the airport the next morning. Mm-hmm. None of that's relevant. Point is, is I remember coming back from my LA interview, USC Keck School of Medicine. And I remember like hearing on the news at the airport that, uh, Lockheed Martin announced that they are now uh, they're finishing up developing the SR-72. Yeah. The Aurora that's supposed to be hypersonic. And they said it will be ready by 2020 to 2030. This was in November 2013. I remember telling my brother John, I was like, you see this? They said that it's going to be ready in 2020 to 2030. And he who had some sort of clearance to work on stuff, he goes, do you know that's Pentagonese? And I go, what's that? And he goes, that means it's been operating for 20 to 30 years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was like, what? And he goes, yeah. During like one of the first government shutdowns, he said that, because all their stuff, I mean, they couldn't take laptops in and out of there. He said there was like, it was he said it felt like World War II. There was like propaganda posters. And it was like, if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And it had all these like like racist Chinese caricatures and stuff. And it was like, don't don't give anything to anyone. No USB cards in and out. Um, but he said it was during the first shutdown. He said someone raised their hand and it's like, well, isn't it bad to shut down the government? Because if they shut it down, that means they got to shut down all those NRO satellites. <laughs> he said the professor, and mind you, and all of these professors are all like, you know, they're from ex Pentagon, ex everything. He's the revolving door. And he yeah. said the professor starts laughing. He goes, oh, <laughs> he goes, walk outside, stand on the sidewalk, just look up and wave. He goes, they're waving back. Woo! yeah Um, yeah it's that is a black hole um dude i would love to do another one on uh on jfk the mob i would love to yeah i would love to there let's um and then after that we'll plan a fourth one farther down the road yeah i need to get you to because i've I've always wanted to discuss because i try to get everyone to read it but you and i are having good back and forth banter i need to get you to read uh operation paperclip or listen to it on Audible, the one I sent you yesterday by Annie Jacobson. Dude, that is a rabbit hole and a half. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll get into it. Yeah, dude, it's, it's the way I always say it is, is like, I'll finish this up. But um, it's like, think about the craziest conspiracy now. And it's like, kind of roll your eyes. And it's like, now imagine that it's like late 40s. You just got back from serving in the Pacific. War's over. We just beat the Nazis just beat the Nazis. Now imagine, and, you know, trust of Uncle Sam is at an all-time high. And flight has been around for roughly, so let's say this is 47, so flight has been around for 45 years. Imagine you stumble into the desert and trustworthy Uncle Sam doesn't tell you that they're about a secret base out there called Tonopah or the Nevada Test or the Proving Grounds, um, Groom Lake, 
So there's one. Number two, what if you saw guys speaking German, faces that you recognized, people that were at the Nuremberg trials? And number three, somehow or another, you find out they're going to the moon. Yeah. Think about how you would be perceived in a country that just beat the Nazis. Flight has been around for 45 years. I mean, black and white TV is the hot new thing. Imagine if you came back from the desert going, there's a base out there that Uncle Sam's not telling us about, and there are U.S. government officials with Nazis, and they're going to go to the moon. In flying saucers. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah. Yeah. Give me, <laughs> some, of what, give me some of what you're smoking. But that is exactly what happened. So the way I look at it is like, if that was capable, if that, if that happens, nothing is off the table. But um, Agreed. Yeah, man. Let's, um, let's definitely do another one. Love to. Dude, I love having you on. I've, you are, you are a new, you are a new awesome guest that I plan on having for a long time. I don't, I won't, I'm not gonna have you offed by, uh, by my mafia men. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I just figured we're talking about. I, I realized I was saying that how weird it sounded. I was like, you're my new friend who I'm not gonna have going anywhere. I meant to say like, hey man, you're a cool guy. I want to have my podcast. But fresh <laughs> off the scene, I mean, that sounded like, hey. You're my friend, and I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. You know? There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go. All right. Paul Wakeham, thank you, sir. And uh, I'll text you after this. Let's set up another one. Sounds great, my friend. Thank you. All right, brother. Stay safe. Peace. Peace.